let's pray and then we'll, we'll get to it. Heavenly Father, thanks for the lunch we've been able to enjoy and also for the good company and just a pleasant time of just sitting and eating together. And now we ask that you would help us as we um, think about your word again and uh, we pray that you would help us to come to a deeper understanding of your purposes in our world and, uh, and your, your good gifts to us through the scriptures. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Rightio, first thing, I haven't got any notes. If you want some, I'll email them to you. Right? Um, they, well, they'll need a bit of attention, so I'll have to spend a bit of time on that before I can send them out. But what's wisdom? Uh, I, I used to ask this question of kids at school sometimes. Um, what's wisdom? Yeah. Now, make it loud for a deaf man. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very right. Now, uh, if I ask it at school, I wouldn't say that. Right. some research on self-esteem when I was doing a, a course at Melbourne University a few years ago and one of the interesting things about it was that successful criminals have high self-esteem because they're good at what they do yeah. right so self-esteem, low self-esteem yeah it, 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 people sort of think well that's what makes people do the wrong thing and maybe sometimes but not always but a criminal's wise now I'm pretty basic when it comes to computers, but there's some people who make a successful criminal living being brilliant at computers, right? So being, knowing stuff and being wise, it's not the same. So Harry's definition of it was knowledge, which is put into practice. My definition, which I used to share with the kids, was wisdom is knowledge applied positively. And then I'd add to that for the benefit of others. Right? Because God actually made us to live together. We're meant to be a community. And, and our world is better when people do things that are good, not just for themselves, but for other people. So wisdom is knowledge applied positively for the benefit of others. Right? But that's not the Bible's definition of wisdom. I think it's, I think it's adequate, but it's not. Anyway, when we talk about the wisdom books, um, if you think of the Bible being a bookshelf... Um, We've got the history books. We've got the you know the five books of Moses. Uh, the books from Job to Song of Songs are normally classified as being the poetic books. Um, they're not all wisdom books. The Psalms has some wisdom elements in them. Typically, the Song of Solomon is not really regarded as a wisdom book. But the, the big three wisdom books are Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I, I must confess that I'd been reading the Bible a long time and didn't really understand Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Um, and I had the very great benefit of studying with Lindsay Wilson at Ridley College, and Lindsay is an expert on the wisdom literature of the Bible. He's written commentaries and, and books, and he's a thoroughly lovely fellow too, so you can just go up and talk to this world-ranking expert after class if you feel like it. And uh, 
He's, I'm thinking I might invite him to come and speak on our camp one day because I reckon he'd do it. Um, we'll see, but not next year because Peter Adams coming back. But um, wisdom theology. Uh, wisdom in the Bible, in terms of the biblical definition of it, it's instructions for successful living, which means understanding how life works and getting along given how life works, right? Just making sense of life. Wisdom in the Bible admits that life is complex, that it's not just black and white. There's lots of shades of grey. Life is difficult, it's complex, and to admit that and to engage with it is what the Bible's wisdom books do. Wisdom is different from the rest of the Bible because the Bible tells a story from Genesis to Revelation and the wisdom books sort of sit a little bit apart from that. So there's not much narrative, there's not much storytelling going on in the wisdom books. There's a bit of story in Job, but even Job's story doesn't show us any how the Bible progresses from Abraham through to Jesus. Um, so wisdom is slightly, it's a bit of an outlier. Um, but one of the things that the Bible's wisdom books recognise is that creation bears witness to the fact that God is behind it. And so there's evidence of God's good hand even in, in the creation. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation leaves people without excuse because you can actually learn about God just by looking around. Um, and so because creation evidences design and, and the, the activity of God, creation can be studied. Now this is interesting because this is one of the things that makes Christianity, Judaism and Christianity distinct from a number of other faiths. Uh, if you believe that life is just an endless cycle, birth, death, birth, death, going around, which is sort of the, the Hindu Buddhist way of looking at life, um, life just is. Uh, and it doesn't really invite the same kind of reflection that, that the, Jude, the Jewish and, and Christian outlook does. If you believe, as Muslims do, that life, that, that everything is just fated, it happened because it was Allah's will, then you go, well, it doesn't really matter. That's just what happened. He's, he's a poor beggar on the street. That's Allah's will. Um, but understanding that life has a beginning and is working toward, towards a conclusion where it goes through a line, it actually, by being a participant in the creation, we realise that there's a purpose behind it which invites us to think about it. And, uh, of course, this led in time to science, uh, which is one of Christianity's gifts to the world. Anyway... Thinking about creation, um, this is a great verse for illustrating what wisdom's about. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6 to 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So, those couple of verses there tell us that lazy people could learn a lesson from ants. Right? So there's lessons to be learnt from observing the patterns of, hist- of, of nature. Uh, because God has stamped his wisdom in there. Uh, so wisdom theology takes creation seriously. Um, and so God is a saving God, but he's a creating God. And I think sometimes Christians underplay creation. Uh, we're very, it's great to be concerned for redemption. That's, it, we have to be. But sometimes we can underestimate God and his creatorship. And, and wisdom literature wants us to take creation seriously. Um, so Solomon, we had a lot to do with the, the wisdom literature. 
uh, he is recorded as having written quite a number of the Proverbs. There's at least there's one psalm that has his name on it and he may well have had a lot to do with Ecclesiastes. But when we read about Solomon in the history books in First King, we, we read that he described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. So Solomon was interested in things more than just about religion. Can you see that? He took an interest in life. Uh, and why wouldn't you? Because all life is a gift of God. So, wisdom theology. Now, Derek Kidner, very helpful Old Testament commentator, he says, when you read the law, when you read the first five books of the Bible, the effect on us should be, believe it, obey it. Right? If the law says it, then we'll do it. But wisdom literature says, think hard as well as humbly. Right? Wisdom is a little bit speculative. It goes into areas of complexity and depth that admits that life is more than we can really get our hands around um, and so it's another way of looking at life uh, which is absolutely complementary to every other part of the bible and yet it asks us to use a different set of skills in some ways and so Derek Kidner says you know wisdom literature appeals to our sense of common sense uh, and our conscience uh, we need to think hard and humbly right um, so a very brief definition of wisdom is that wisdom is skill for living well. Who doesn't want to live well? Do you want to make a success of your life? That's what wisdom literature is about. Just making a good fist of it as a human. Uh, as a human who lives in the world that God's made. Uh, Lena, she was onto this before, wisdom begins with the fear of God. And so at various points throughout the wisdom literature, that is stated quite clearly. So Proverbs 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, in, in Job, Ecclesiastes, and there's a psalm that says it as well. So if you want to be wise, if you want to learn how to live well, it begins by relating rightly to God. Fear doesn't mean, ooh, I'm scared of God. Fear is another way of saying, I revere God. In a New Testament sense, the equivalent of the fear of God is faith. Because what it means is, fear, fear begins with an acknowledgement that I am not God, but he is. If I'm not God and he is, I need to learn to relate rightly to him. right? And relating rightly to a God who is much more than we could ever be, that's called fear, and, and that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, we've seen the opposite of wisdom in Babylon this morning because Babylon's saying, no, we, we're on our own. We can do this ourselves. That's the opposite of fear. That's foolishness. But fear says, no, God is God. I'm not. I'll live his way. I'll, I'll seek his wisdom. So the book of Proverbs, we need to start with the book of Proverbs. Job comes first in the wisdom categories. But Job and Ecclesiastes are almost written as answers to the book of Proverbs. So if you want to understand wisdom literature, you need to start with Proverbs because it's the foundation text. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. I hope this is... We've got a lot to cover, so I hope you can stay with me, right? So if you drop off... If half of you drops off, then I'll stop, right? Um, Proverbs are virtually universal. Every culture has Proverbs, of one kind or another. So we know about it's no use crying over spilt milk, don't we? Does that proverb only apply when you have a kitchen accident? Right, so there's more to it than goes on literally, right? So you could trip over the gutter 
and weep for an hour and someone could say to you, it's no use crying over spilt milk and you say, I don't see any milk here and you're missing the point, right? So the point goes beyond a literal interpretation. That's something you need to bear in mind when you're reading biblical proverbs. Uh, You can't judge a book by its cover. Again, we all know what it means, don't we? But the meaning goes beyond literal. So Proverbs are virtually universal. They're short sentences which are well known among ordinary people. They're sort of statements that mums and dads bring up their kids with to help their kids understand how life works. They contain wisdom, truth, morals, traditional values. Every culture has them. Uh, Usually they're couched in poetic and symbolic language so that they're more memorable. And so our Proverbs in the Bible are like that. They're short, they're sharp. Um, if we were to read them in Hebrew, they'd possibly have even more impact because of the p- Hebrew poetry. Uh, but they, they're written that way so that they're memorisable. Um, so here's one. What, what, what proverb would this be? It's, it's an English proverb. A stitch in time saves nine, right? So if you start with a little hole, it's going to end up with being a big hole unless you bought your jeans that way, right? Uh, but a stitch in time saves nine. Now, you could be literal and say, it took 15 stitches. Yeah. You're missing the point, right? What it means is little hole will become big hole if you don't do something about it. So you'll save time fixing, you know. I sometimes look at sheds that have fallen down and I think to myself, I bet you the farmer said, if it leans over a bit more, I'll fix it. But then it ends up on the ground, right? A stitch in time. See how it's almost, it almost rhymes? So it's a short saying that, that rhymes, it's punchy, it, it catches on in the memory. Um, now, to interpret wisdom literature well, it does take some skill. It's not just a matter of course. So chapter 1, verse 6 of the book of Proverbs actually tells us, this is the first seven verses of Proverbs are like an introduction, and it actually tells us that one of the purposes of the book of Proverbs is to help you understand Proverbs. So for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise, four different categories of wisdom techniques, proverbs, parables, sayings and riddles. Jesus wasn't the first person to use parables. There's parables in the Old Testament, uh, stories that have poetic intent with deeper levels of meaning. Um, The book of Proverbs persuades us that understanding wisdom is actually not easy. Uh, but it will be worth it. In chapter 2, it actually says it's like searching for, for treasure. Now, if you've ever heard anything about people who go in search for treasure, they plan carefully and they invest a lot of money to do it. So the search for wisdom won't be easy, but it's worth it. Years ago, um, back in the day before the Pakenham Bypass, um, you used to have to drive through Pakenham if you wanted to go from Druin to Melbourne, and they were advertising the new lakeside development, which is now a, almost a city on its own. And they had these banners that faced the highway as you drove through it. Lakeside. Um, shopping is easy. Then you get to the next one. Uh, leisure is easy. So you've got good shops, you've got nice ovals. And then about the fourth one down was learning is easy. Because there's a school. And I thought, that's a lie. <laughs> Learning's never easy. If you want to learn wisdom, it's going to take hard work. But is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Um, So here's a few tips for understanding Proverbs. They use poetic licence. 
Like, when you read, when you hear a joke, you just accept that it's a joke, don't you? You don't sort of expect it to be true in every detail. You put up with the fact that it's a joke and it made you laugh. When you read poetry, you expect poets to exaggerate sometimes. That's just one of their techniques. So Proverbs 23, 1 and 2, when you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is given before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. In other words, suicide if you feel like you're going to eat too much. Because if you eat too much in front of the Queen, she'll say, he's a pig, we're not having him back to Buckingham Palace. Right? That's... It's hyperbole, it's deliberate exaggeration to ram it into your head. Next time you are invited to Buckingham Palace, behave yourself. That's what it means, right? But it uses strong language to get it across. Now here's the thing, this is one of the, this is one of the big take-homes for me from when I learnt wisdom with Lindsay Wilson. Um, because I, I came into the class wanting to have a high view of the Bible, and I still do. One of the things he got across to us, you've got to read the Bible on the terms it sets for itself. Right? And so he said, Proverbs are proverbs, not promises. Now, once you get that in mind, it will help you avoid misinterpreting and misapplying Proverbs. And I can tell you, uh, in, in some of the work I've done in churches, one of the biggest causes of grief to Christians is when people misapply Proverbs and come up to them come up to people with a misapplied proverb can cause deep hurt right so here's here's an example lazy hands make a man poor but diligent hands bring wealth does that mean if you're diligent you're going to be rich we all know that that's not the case there's plenty of hard-working diligent people who are anything but wealthy there's plenty of lazy people who do get along quite well one way or another Proverbs show us the best route to the most desirable outcome. Is it good to have enough money? Yes. How are you going to get there? Chances are by diligence. Laziness doesn't usually produce a good result. So think it through. Proverbs are proverbs, short, catchy sayings that contain truth, but um, they need to be understood that they're proverbs, not promises. They're true, but they don't deal with every aspect of the reality that they uh, address. So in one proverb, you're not going to be able to say everything that you want to say about the subject of hard work and wealth. So you'll have to look elsewhere in the book for some more tips. But here's a good start. Now, proverbs are often time-sensitive. So in other words, you've got to use the right proverb at the right time. And this is one of the tricks for applying them properly because the wrong proverb at the wrong time can do harm. So think about this from our English proverbs. Too many cooks spoil the broth. We know that one, don't we? Right? But many hands make light work. They're opposite sides of the same situation. So when you're cooking in the kitchen, you can have too much help. But when the dishes need to be done, you need more. Right? They're both true, but they're true at different times. Right? So we've got to judge the situation that we're addressing. Here's this one from the book of Proverbs. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word? Right? That's pretty sensible, isn't it? So it's nice to say, G'day, Derek. Right? Okay? But if I came round at three in the morning and said, G'day, Derek, he wouldn't welcome it at all. So Proverbs 27.14 says, If a man loudly blesses his neighbour early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. So pick your moment for your friendly greeting. That's what those two tell us. Now notice how far apart they are. 
chapter 15, chapter 27, right? The book of Proverbs, I haven't read anybody and I haven't been able to find the connection between the Proverbs in each of the chapters. They do look a little bit random. But the fact is that they're meant to be read again and again and again, taught to your children and and let them just sort of sink in, right? But you won't find very often Proverbs linked by subject. So you just got to sort of assimilate the whole lot. Now, one thing about Proverbs is you've got to use your brains, right? Um, Christians need to be thinking people. Uh, I've heard people say that the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. I'm a bit troubled when I hear that sometimes. There's a sense in which it's true, but then on the other hand, the question is, does the Bible really say it? So we've got to use our brains when we read the Bible. God's given it to us to use. Uh, so here's a really good example. There's two, there's two proverbs right next to each other which hold a key to interpreting proverbs. So answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. Do you know this? You remember Gary Larson's Far Side? They used to publish them in the Herald Sun and I used to quite like them and I had this on my notice board when I was a teacher. Um, so this one, the class was quietly doing its lesson when Russell, suffering from problems at home, prepared to employ an attention-getting device. Right? <laughs> I'm not even going to try to explain why I find that funny, but that reduces me to tears sometimes, that one. But if as a teacher I have a student about to employ an attention-seeking device in class, I owe it as a matter of justice to the other 24 kids in the room to try to put a stop to it. So if he's going to be foolish, I've got to put a stop to it because there's 24 other kids there that want to learn. right? So there's a time when you answer a fool according to his folly. Or he'll be wise in his own eye. But right next to it, the verse before it, chapter 26, verse 4, says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. Now, there's sometimes when you'll hear people say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, go on. They're right next to it. You don't reckon when they put the book of Proverbs together, they noticed that they were different? Give them some credit. So the fact that we've got two opposed proverbs right next to each other is a key for us we've got to understand it sometimes you answer fools and sometimes you don't pick your moment but if the fool's got if the fool's got an axe or a pistol best not to engage in debate right but one night when i was visiting sally at the hospital in melbourne some years ago um, this is when she was in royal park and uh, to go to where my car was i had to walk out onto a lonely street at 10 30 at night uh, where I was the only other person around, except for the man going by howling at the moon. And so I went down, and here's this guy, making an incredible racket, and he looked at me and swore loudly and asked what I was on about, and so I retreated. I didn't go to him and say, oh, I've got as much right to be on the road as you have, my friend, right? Because whatever was troubling him looked like it could be a danger to me. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Or you'll be like himself. Pick your moment. Pick the time. Right time, right proverb. That's one of the rules. So proverbs can be used badly. Um, the book actually says that. So remember that in chapter 1 we're told that one of the reasons for learning proverbs is to use them properly. Proverbs 26 verse 9, there's a couple like this, but here's one. Like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. So imagine a drunk with a thorn bush. It's going to go further and further in and cut his hand. He's going to be in big trouble. 
But that's the damage that can be done if a foolish person uses a proverb unwisely. Now I'll give you the classic example in my experience. Proverbs 22 verse 6, everybody's favourite. Train a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now look, one of the biggest tragedies that faces Christian parents is when they have children who depart from the way. It's a terrible tragedy and it's made worse when somebody comes, well you should have trained them up in the way of the Lord and then they wouldn't have departed from it. It's impudent, it's arrogant and it's usually very ignorant. Now we're told to train our children up in the way of the Lord. That is a good thing. But remember, proverbs are proverbs, not promises. They teach us the most likely road to the most desirable outcome. But despite the best efforts of loving parents, sometimes children, when they get to an age of discretion, can make their own decisions and depart from the faith. And it's sad, but it happens. And so this is not an occasion to bring that proverb out and use it as a whip. I'll show you why not. Because elsewhere in the Bible, the very problem is countenance. So in Deuteronomy 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, here's what you do. So that very problem is addressed elsewhere in Scripture. Proverbs are proverbs, not promises. The best road to the best outcome, right? But it's not a guarantee. Uh, The pastor that preceded me at the community church was a man whose wisdom I respect, I continue to respect very highly. And I was talking to him about kids one day and he said, Steve, you can do everything right. You can bring them to church, you can send them to Cairo, Christian school, you can take them to a youth group. He says, you can do everything. He says, there's no guarantees. And it's true, sadly. Um, and, and so be careful because it may be that you're misapplying a proverb that in its way is true you might, you, it's possible to misapply does that make sense? I, I'm not trying to be troubling here because I do believe the Bible's true but we've got to read the whole Bible and if the book of Proverbs counsels us to use these wisely and carefully we, we need to right? Well, it is correct in the majority of cases it is correct so it's saying, look, do this. Raise your kids to believe in Jesus. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Encourage them. But you know, I can, I, I'm trusting that all of our kids are saved. But I pray for them every day, and our, and our grandchildren too, because look, they, they may wander off. I don't know. I hope they don't. But uh, but be careful. Um, damage can be done when Christians are judgmental and misapply Scripture. Uh, some proverbs are always true, so the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Well, there's no argument about that. That means if you're a butcher, don't put your, th- your thumb on the, uh, on the scales when you're weighing out the meat, right? Um, but that applies more broadly than just that. What it means is be honest. You know, so if you're writing your time sheet, um, fill in accurately what time you started and what time you knocked off. Um, don't pinch stationary from the boss's supply when no one's watching you know um, just be honest Christians ought to be honest so the, the key to a wise life the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline so fear is piety respect towards a superior uh, it's reverence um, it's found it's the foundation of a wise life it's the first principle wisdom is really a relationship like I said before it's knowing who God is knowing who we are in in connection 
So that, that's enough on Proverbs. Um, anything, any questions or comments or hesitations so far? Yep. Yep. I'll talk loud, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Because I, I find it hard to, to talk into a microphone with hearing aids on, so I could turn them back on, but yeah, you talk loud and that'll be good. We're talking about the three books yeah. of wisdom. But to gain wisdom, you've got to have the fear of God. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. To get the knowledge of God, you've got to read. I would begin the Bible by reading the um, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Yeah. I'd be reading Genesis 1 to yeah. get the fear of God. Okay. What, what, what we said at the outset, where Harry put it, was putting the um, uh, uh, wisdom is the application of knowledge yeah. and putting it into the practical way, applying it, and then you added, added your bit at the yeah. end by uh, um, abiding yeah. others as well. I, I, I find that difficult to work out why we're talking about how That's true, um, but in my experience, a lot of Christians avoid the wisdom books because they're odd. Uh, they're just different, um, and and because they don't have such an obvious role in the Bible's big story, and because they're odd, people often ignore them. But we're, we're cutting ourselves off from a, a blessing that God wants for us because they're important. Now, I, I heard a talk earlier this year by a fellow that was um, regularly meeting with an atheist to discuss spiritual things and um, he persuaded him to read the Bible and um, he told him start with the book of John and this bloke says no I'm going to start at the beginning and so he started at Genesis and he got saved reading Leviticus right that's when he, he got like there was just something about, so it may be that a person is drawn to the scriptures because of the wisdom. So I did a funeral some years ago, um, and I told the funeral directors that I, I was I was duped into doing a funeral once, where I, they said we don't want any any religion in it, and and so I rang the funeral director and said, as of now, if you want me to do a funeral for you, tell the people beforehand so it's not an embarrassment that any funeral I do will have Bible readings, prayers, and a a reflection on life, death and eternity and if they don't want that then they don't want me and so anyway I got this other one and I got there and I hadn't been told uh, but they said oh she wasn't a religious minded person, we didn't really want I said well they're the only kind I do and uh, and so they said well what would you talk about and I said well perhaps we might do something from Ecclesiastes, now these were teachers so they're both sort of educated people and um into classical music and art and you know, refined sensibilities and all that sort of stuff. So I said, well, I said, what would you do? I said, well, Ecclesiastes has got that passage, there's a time to be born and a time to die, and went through it. They said, is that in the Bible? I said, yeah. Now, they probably knew it because the birds made a hit song out of it. 
right? They said, I was that in the Bible? And so I went through a bit more of Ecclesiastes. I said, that's fascinating. So it may be that the wisdom book, maybe Ecclesiastes was a good place for them to start. So um, different horses, different courses maybe, I don't know. But I'm going to get through reading the Bible in 12 months because Proverbs would take up so much of my thinking. Yeah. Every verse, yeah. I can think about. I'd never get through. Yeah, well, and, and then I'd want to go back. Yeah, that. well, that's that's true. Yeah, I um, look. The idea of reading the Bible in a year—it's not compulsory, but it's just—it's for me, it's a useful discipline. And so I, I introduced that as just as a, an idea. But every verse in Proverbs does invite reflection. But my my goal for a long time has been—I I want to try to have as much of the scriptures in my head so that it—it's—I have it at my fingertips, you know, so that I, I... It just seems like a good idea to hold as much of it together as you can. And if you if you atomise it and read only tiny little bits, you, you know, to my way of thinking, you're never really going to get the, the, the big sweep of it, you know, and so that's why I try to keep churning through it. Um, but I do... I know what you mean. Um, uh, anyway, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs versus Job and Ecclesiastes. One of the questions when you read Proverbs is, does it promise too much? If all we had was Proverbs and we didn't have Job and Ecclesiastes, you might look at it and say, I'm pretty hard working, but I'm not rich. What's going on? You might think, I've trained up my children in the way of the Lord and they did. What's going on? David Hubbard was a, an outstanding Old Testament scholar from America and he sums it up this way. He says, Proverbs seems to say, here are the rules for life, try them and see if they work. Job and Ecclesiastes say we did and they don't. <laughs> now this is where it gets interesting, friends, and this is where I had to be helped. And I was, I'm ever so grateful now that I, I, I had the opportunity and I was directed towards some really good reading. Job and Ecclesiastes deal with some of the complexities that are hinted at in the book of Proverbs but that could come from misreading Proverbs. And I reckon Job is a classic example of people that knew Proverbs and handled them badly. And Job's a test case in how not to use Proverbs. So Job, you can sum up in... uh, Chapter 28 is like the heart of the book of Job and it asks the question, where shall wisdom be found? It's this incredible poem that goes through all the different techniques that ancient people used to use for mining. And it says we can dig under the earth, we can do this, we can do that, but where can you, you... can you dig up wisdom? And the, what's the answer to that question? Where shall wisdom be found? What's the answer? In the Lord. In the Lord. There you go. Right? That wisdom will be found in that you can't dig it up. Right? But you will need to go reverently to the source of wisdom. Right? So, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever heard that question asked? Right? Um, have you ever said to yourself or heard someone else say it's not fair what about I've had more than my share what about what have I done to deserve this have you ever found yourself don't just you know just register this mentally you don't, it's not confession time right um, but like I can tell you I hear that a lot and if you keep your eyes open in the media you'll see it um, people say oh he didn't deserve that yeah. well it's like What's the logic behind that? Uh, there's this persistent belief that goes around and goes around and is always there that somehow consequences, what happens, should reflect character. 
So if you're a good person, the universe owes you good things. If you're a bad person, then the universe owes you bad things, right? Now, that's um, what's called the doctrine of retribution, and that is the outlook that confronts Job. Uh, The idea was and continues to be that if you're righteous or good, that should lead to prosperity. Now, that verse we saw from Proverbs tends to suggest that. So if you read Proverbs without taking them all to heart, you could come away thinking hard work is going to lead to wealth. Good character is going to lead to wealth. Um, The converse of that is that wickedness is paid out by suffering. And so the belief is, therefore, those who prosper must be righteous and those who suffer must be wicked. Now, there's one character in the Bible who absolutely proves that to be anything but true. Who's that? Jesus. Because no one suffered like Jesus. But there were plenty of people who jumped to the conclusion, man on the cross, suffering, he must be a crook. Right? They were wrong. Right? Um, But this idea that if you are righteous, you will prosper. If you are suffering, you must be wicked. That's the, that's the attitude that confronts Job. And it's still a commonplace principle. Who knows the sound of music? We know the sound of music. Uh, songs that live on in our hearts and I trust don't direct our steps too hard. But when, when Maria discovers, what's his, the colonel or whatever he is, um, something good she sings. And look at these words. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. So in other words, he is her reward for something she can't even remember. I must have done, you know, because that's how life works, isn't it? There's a lot of people who think that, including Job's friends. So let's think a bit about Job, the setting. It's probably set in the patriarchal era. You'll sometimes hear people say Job's the oldest book in the Bible. People who know about these things tell us that's not true. Uh, Wisdom literature was a kind of writing that took hold at a particular time in Israel's history around about the Solomon era but the story that's told in Job was probably set in the days of Abraham probably Uh, but it was almost certain but the kinds of words that were written uh, and the kinds of ideas that addresses make it seem like a much more recent book than Abraham so probably around the time of Solomon Um, there's no indication of his genealogy we're not told who his dad was and who his grandfather and all those sorts of things no indication of when he lived all we read biographically about him is this man was the greatest of all the people of the east which means he lived beyond the jordan Uh, he lived east of the jordan river Uh, we're told that he came from the land of us we don't know anything about the land of us except that lamentations uh, chapter four links us and edom now edom were the descendants of esau Uh, back in the book of Genesis and they were ancient enemies of Israel as it turned out but he probably came from somewhere down there it's certainly east of the uh, Jordan River but even that is not that important it's a Hebrew book but probably the lead character is not a Hebrew Um, now when we start the book of Job and this is the key to understand a key to understanding the whole thing we're told that Job was blameless and upright he feared God and he shunned evil so there's four ripper things. Every one of those would be good on your gravestone, wouldn't it? Right? Here lies Steve. He was blameless. Oh, you know, right? Like I said this morning, you know, talking about what you want said, that, that'd be pretty good if they said of Vicky at the funeral, you know, Vicky, that, now, that's extraordinary. 
He's the only person in the Bible who has four good things said about him in one sentence. There's a bit of a picture for me here. And not only that, we're told three times that that was what Job... Three times we're given that character profile of Job. Blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. The fact that he feared God, what does that tell us about Job right at the beginning? Lena? He's wise, right? So verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us Job is a good man and a wise man. Right? Now he's not sinless, we know that, and he doesn't even claim to be. In 1 Kings 8 and in Ecclesiastes 7 we're told that there's no one without sin. So we're not saying that Job is, a, is sinless, but what we're saying is he's as good as a man can be and if ever a person deserved the blessing of God because of a righteous life, it was Job. Right? Can you see how this is setting us up for the rest of the book? So when all of those tragedies come on Job, right from the beginning we'll say, he's done nothing to deserve it, won't we? And that's why when the friends show up, we go, hang on, what's going on here? So one day, the angels, that's the sons of God, um, or the son, they're called the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. That's what we call the heavenly council, which we can read about elsewhere in the scriptures. And Satan is the one who initiates the problem. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Right? Satan replied, now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So what we're seeing now is a test. Is Job a good man, blameless, upright, um, fears God and turns away from evil? Does he only do that for what he can get out of it? That's what Satan's asking. Now, I'll talk a bit bit more about that in a moment. I'll talk about it now. Satan is a minor character in the book of Job, right? If you read the book of Job wanting to learn about Satan, you're reading it for the wrong reason. I don't actually think it's the devil, because the word actually means adversary or accuser and in the hebrew there's the the definite article it's the satan now if you want to say this is the devil definitely then um, there's a number of other places in the old testament that uses exactly the same word satanus exactly the same word but it doesn't mean the devil so we won't worry about it now but just get this in your head when you read the book of Job, that Satan is a minor character who disappears after chapter 2, verse 7. He is not the reason for the book, and Job is not a great source for learning about him. Right? If you want to learn about Satan, there's much more explicit detail in the New Testament, even then not that much. Um, but he's never blamed as the source of Job's problems once, not once. So don't go linking it. Uh, Job never hears of the involvement of this adversary. God doesn't tell him. But chapter 1 verse 9 is the book's big question. Does Job fear God for no reason? Is Job's faith only because of what he gets out of it, because of God's blessing and protection? That is an insult both to Job and to God. Uh, Does Job worship God for what he can get? Does God buy people off with what he gives? You know, poor old lonely God up in heaven, he needs Greg as a friend, so he's going to bless him. You know, is that how it works? Not at all, right? Um, but that, that's an insult both to Job and to God. Right, so the next phase of the book, the three friends turn up. Uh, they arrive, they're, they're people who've come from a long way and we're told that they mourned for seven days, which is the customary mourning period for a dead person. So they've come to Job as though he's dead. And for seven days they sit in silence, which is interesting because when, the, when they open their mouths, that's when all the trouble starts. Remember, you can use Proverbs badly. That's what they do. 
They're an example of how not to use Proverbs. So chapters 4 to 27 begin the dialogues and they turn from being sympathetic to being accusers. Um, William Blake, the famous English artist, did a series of drawings of the story of Job and he has... That's pretty stunning, eh? Um, that's how they do it so it's a contest in three rounds the disputes carry the book's message the friends go from silence to dispute what what they want to know is what have you done to cause this job they look at a man suffering they go your fault what did you do we'll help you work it out anyway Frank Anderson's an Australian commentator and he says the structure of the book tells us how to interpret it so we get the introduction chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 then we get a series of speeches that occupy us all the way through to chapter 42 and then we get a conclusion, which is about the same length as the introduction. Right, Just very short introduction, very short conclusion and in the, mean, in the meantime, speeches. Um, so we get two interviews, the, the, the Satan and, and God. Um, and then we get the dialogues between the friends and Job and then this other fellow called Elihu. And then we get two interviews between God and Job. So it starts with interviews, ends with interviews, dialogues in between. But the dialogues can be broken up into four speech rounds and then there's four speeches with Elihu. So there's real structure and purpose. When I used to read Job without really understanding it, I'd just read it like I read every other part of the Bible. I'd just read a chapter here, you know, then move on to the next chapter. But if you read it according to the structure, it becomes much easier to understand. That's what I've found. Um, so these four speech rounds the dialogues are structured like this and so if you're following my bible reading plan i've tried to structure the daily reading some of them are quite long some of them are shorter so that it takes note of of this pattern so eliphaz is friend one he speaks and then job answers then bildad speaks and job answers and then zophar speaks and job answers and that happens three times right You've got to remember that. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. And it looks like this. The friends believe in the doctrine of retribution, that good things happen to good people, and if bad things have happened, it means you're a bad person. They believe that, right? And that comes out in the sorts of things they say. It looks like Job believes it too, but he just says, I haven't done anything bad enough to deserve this. right? So they all need to have their thinking broadened, and that's what this book's about. So they think that life works according to fixed principles. The good prosper, the evil, evil are punished. So they, their answer to Job is just fess up, just confess your sins and you'll be okay. You'll get everything back. Right? So let's see how it works out. First round of speeches. Eliphaz Job, Bildad Job, Zophar Job. What do you notice? Now what I've done here, I worked this out as a graph in terms of how many words each of them spoke. What do you notice? Job speaking more and more. Job speaking more. Yeah, right. So Eliphaz speaks. Does Bildad say as much as Eliphaz? Does Zophar say as much as Bildad? But Job always outdoes them, right? See if the pattern continues. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Job always has more to say. But then when you get to the third speech round, something very interesting happens. There's Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job... No, so far. So what's happened to him? Now, I didn't make any of this up. I just read the people that helped me understand it. The, conclu- the conclusion some people have drawn is that we've lost Zophar's last speech. Now, I don't think that's right. I actually think that what's happened 
is that Zophar doesn't have anything to say because the friends have run out of steam. And so the way that the story is told shows us that they're not the right answer. The idea that Job's done something so bad that he deserves to lose everything he owns, including his health, that's not the right answer. So Job chapter 28 is like a breath of fresh air after this. It gets pretty heated towards the end of the discussions because they're saying some pretty rough stuff to Job, uh, which I wouldn't recommend you copy. Um, like it, it's not pastoral care 101. Oh, the friends, they got away with it. It's in the Bible, right? Don't try this at home. Um, so Job sums up in chapters 29 to 37 and then we get this chap called Elihu who comes, comes in and he says... I've been hanging around waiting for all you old blokes to finish. I'm a young bloke and the Spirit's told me. So he's, he's God told me to tell you, Job. Uh, and he hasn't, he hasn't got anything new to add and nothing helpful to say. But chapter 31, verse 40, Job finishes up. The words of Job are ended, right? And so then from chapter 38 onwards, God has the last word. And so job has actually pleaded in chapter 31 oh oh, that i had someone to hear me he wants his day in court he thinks god's wronged him which is really interesting god job thinks that god has treated him badly like he's i I haven't done anything to deserve this i know i'm not perfect but i haven't done i'm not this bad and so he wants his day in court he wants someone to bring him and god together and so in chapter 38 verse 1 God appears. Yahweh shows up and he talks to, to Job. He doesn't list Job's sins, he just asks questions. Right? And start, there's, there's some magnificent poetry here, um, but he begins by asking, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. He's having a bit of a probe, a bit of a prod. Right? Now, what's fear? Fear is the beginning of wisdom. It's understanding that God's God and we're not. It's understanding there's things we don't know. But if God's good and and there's things that we don't know, sometimes we have to put up with knowing less than we'd like to. And I think that's what the point of the discussion... Well, Job doesn't actually say much to God. God does all the talking. But he asks him a bunch of questions without ever condemning him. And Job answers Yahweh... Uh, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth, which is a way of saying, I've got nothing further to add. Um, And so Yahweh speaks again, and this time he raises a couple of interesting characters, Behemoth and Leviathan. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. And then he goes on to Leviathan. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Now these characters are interesting and they've attracted a fair bit of debate. Um, Behemoth and Leviathan are known from ancient Canaanite mythology as figures of chaos and, and supernatural strength, right? But some people wonder whether they're poetic descriptions of a hippopotamus and a crocodile, which are terrifying land animals, aren't they? Right? And so the question is, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Well, can you? Of course you can't. Job can't. But what, what God's saying is, you can't, but I can. So when you can do all these things, then maybe you'll understand. So Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So Job has got what he asked for. He wanted an audience, and he's got it. 
Um, and Job has his final word in chapter 42, 1 to 6. And it says there that he repents of dust and ashes. Now, this is one of, one of the things about interpreting Job is that there's about 50 words in the book that don't appear anywhere else in the world. So to interpret ancient literature, you've got to work out how those words work, not just in the Bible, but what they mean in the literature of the culture that gave them. There's about 50 words in Job that don't appear anywhere else. And so scholars have to admit there's some words that we're not quite sure of. There's enough there that we can be fairly clear. But one of the mistakes in the book of Job is that some of the translations say, now Job repents in dust and ashes. And those of us who know a bit about the medieval era think he's put on some sackcloth and he's daubed his face with charcoal and he says, sorry God. But Job's got nothing to repent of. Because he's not, we're not told that he did anything wrong. Now the word repent means to change your mind. And in the Old Testament, sometimes we're told that God changes his mind. It's a figure of speech, but nonetheless, the idea of repentance is something that's not foreign to God. And I think what's going on here, and again I owe it to Lindsay Wilson, he says, sitting in the, the town ash heap, um, that, 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 that's how tips used to be. I, I went to visit some missionaries in Africa some years ago and the outskirts of town where all the feral animals just come and eat the scraps. That's where Job was sitting, in the ash heap, scraping himself with pottery. What he's saying here is, now I've had my audience with you, God, it's so thoroughly satisfied me, I can turn away from my life of living in ashes. He hasn't got everything back yet, but he's saying, thank you, God, you've given me what I asked for which was an audience. Not an explanation, just an audience. God never tells him, this is why it happened. He never hears that. So Job, Job's satisfied and he can turn from his morning because God has appeared. He's helped Job understanding his running of the world. right? And so in the epilogue, when, Job, when God speaks to Job, he tells him, you can pray for your friends. right? He says to the friends, Job will pray for you and I'll forgive you. Right? So the friends haven't spoken of, of, um, of God rightly. And that comes across in verse 7 and 8. You have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job has to make intercession. And what that means is the doctrine of retribution, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, that does not fully explain the workings of the world. Does that make sense? That's what the book's about. It's not a book about suffering. Did you know that? Uh, the book of James quotes Job as an example of patience, but it's not really a book about patience, it's a book about wisdom. And wisdom means understanding that life doesn't always pay out neatly. Life's more complex than that. And, uh, and so we get this, this incredible story to illustrate it. Um, we, we're told in the end that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. So, but that was, uh, that was after Job had... Job said what he said before he knew he was going to get the goodies back. So it's not primarily about suffering, it's the context of the book's message, but one of the big things is that God's sovereign and his ways really can't be completely understood. So wisdom means relating to God and trusting him even in spite of our circumstances. Does that make sense? Great book, Job. You can read it again and again and again. Um, It's a great book. Uh, how are we going? Hans. Um, 
could just add to that this the, the retribution principle is is a fascinating fascinating thing. Um, what I found enormously helpful was was just pondering on on this misconception that we have when we do the right thing we get blessings when we do the wrong things those people will be punished whatever Um, the the problem with that always being the case is that and you've mentioned it if God is sovereign then God decides and God acts outside of anything that we may have done and and it can't possibly be true that if I do this, 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 and this, then God will reward me in that way. That can't be true because then we become God. Yeah, we true. are we are ordering what it, it is. is we want God to do. We can rely that He will do that for me. Yeah. That can't possibly be the case that God is sovereign. No. And, and so that's against the fear principle, the fear of reverence. What, what that means is we're bargaining with God and, and, and we're telling, this is how you need to do it, God. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got it pretty well worked out, God, and between you and me, I reckon we can get this thing straightened out. So it's just not like that. And that's where. So Job was a pious man and, and he prayed for his children and he sacrificed. And, and towards the end, when he defends himself, he talks about the sorts of things that characterise his life. And it's like a summary of what a good Jewish person would do. And he's done it all. He's looked after the poor, he's taken care of widows, he's taken in destitute children. It's a catalogue of Jewish righteousness. Um, but that's not why God blesses him. You know, uh, and, and now that it's all been taken away, Job has to learn that there's more to life than that. Yeah, but you're right, Hans. If you just do stuff because you think this is the key to the... The, you know, the keys to the heavenly bank well then yeah but um, yeah look we had a question Chris oh, just, uh, the something aspect of, of Joe a lot, a lot of what theologians would say is also about something of Joe but it, isn't there a lot of wisdom in the way that Joe took uh, uh, a lot of suffering and that he wasn't going to get back and his time and stuff like that how we when we go through times of grief and suffering that we're not going to blame God for it, that we're going to blame God for it. And uh, they, they lost their son, Philip, to cancer when he was just shy of his 18th birthday. So he got, he got a cancer in his leg. His leg was amputated when he was 12, and he went into a period of remission, and then he died a month shy of his 18th birthday. And um, now Tom is a person who has done probably... He's helped me understand God's sovereignty just as a concept, probably more than anyone else. Um, and so I knew that that was a strong thread in his believing that God is sovereign Um, and so to see how they bore the grief they were sad uh, but they were held up by their faith or upheld so God carried them you know and they would say that 
but it's it was a you know it was it was an experiment in trusting God's sovereignty. You, know, you could watch it. You, you know, we were, uh, and so I've been helped by them. Um, and so, you know, our situation with Sal, I, I have found the insights of un, I think understanding wisdom literature very helpful. Um, because you know, look, I've had people say, I, I've had people say to me, "Why is this happening to you?" I, I, when Sal got really sick and when she started having these bleeding episodes, I had to take a few days off. And, and it, word had gone around at Pakenham Baptist where I was. There was, you know, we were wonderfully supported there by people. And um, I thought I owed it to the church to explain what was happening. So I stood up my first Sunday back and I, I gave a little bit of an account of how I've come to understand suffering biblically. And, uh, and I said in that, I said, you know, I've had people say to me, how can this be happening to you or a pastor? And after church, the first person to speak to me said, how can this be happening to you? You're a pastor. He said that. <laughs> well, my answer is, why shouldn't it? Look, we're just flesh and blood. You know, and, and you know, life's difficult. But, you know, we've had a lot of help from, uh, from the scriptures, obviously. But someone like Johnny Erickson Tata. Have you, do you know Johnny, the girl in the wheelchair? I've, I've quoted her before. Extraordinary woman, extraordinary faith, and um, uh, you know, and the things that she. And so Sally and I read one of her books together, and ended up writing her a letter to thank her, which she replied to personally, which tells you something about what kind of person she is. And I wrote to her when Sal was in hospital with all that bleeding, and she wrote back personally. She, she's a She's the real, real thing. Let me tell you. Um, but yeah, look, it's, life isn't neat. It's perplexing, and that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. Now, I think Ecclesiastes may be Ray Patchett's favourite book. Uh, so, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't misquote him. But Joe, 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 we're talking about Joe. Yeah. Joe was the one that suffered already. Um, he was the heart. Yeah. But the family died. They did the, had the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah. And not, not much is said regarding the consequence. No. Job stuck by his faith. Yeah. But the, but the consequences of of that. Tell me about the family. Yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. So that's, said, there's virtually nothing. There's almost nothing said that's about what, his wife. That's the issue that concerns me. Yeah. The fact that we're uh, praising and acknowledging. Uh, how, how well Job got through this, but nothing's mentioned about the ones that suffered even more. They died. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure, uh, I asked Vicky that, and I asked Helen that as well. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Have, have, you got, have you got any thoughts on that? No, but, but well, why, why make presumptions on God? I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and you haven't said a little bit of knowledge from the dangers as well. You've got to know the full stuff and it probably doesn't describe every aspect of what was going on, but the fact that I guess death's part of life. And, and doesn't mean and, and, 
And tragedy is part of life. And tragedies do not skip God's people. Um, so, and and like the, the righteous sufferer par excellence in the Bible is Jesus, right? So there was nothing just about his suffering. It was family God's people yeah well we're not told but Job was a pious man because he prayed for his children and sacrificed for them and 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 all those sorts of things but we're not told about whether his children had come to the same level as so any answer that I give now is going to be speculative and and to that extent may not be that helpful Um, so I guess my answer would be we need to accept that as part of the story and get to what the story is really wanting us to focus on, which is the fact that life is difficult, but faced with wisdom and understanding that the, when bad things happen to us, they're not necessarily the consequence of sin. That's an important lesson for Christians to learn because there's too many who jump to that conclusion even now, right? Uh, far too many who look at other people's suffering and say, well, they must be sinners. And it's just not that simple. My grandmother lost... Both my grandmothers lost two children. Uh, and um, and my dad's mother lost her eldest son to Murray Valley encephalitis, age six. Dad came along, his next youngest uh, died of diphtheria because there had been a bad batch of diphtheria vaccination that had ended in children dying and my grandparents elected not to use the diphtheria vaccine. He got diphtheria and died in agony. And some woman at church came and told Grandma the sins that she had committed that led to that. (laughs) Now, as though her grief isn't enough, right? So that's what the friends did to Job. And so one of the lessons from this is be careful you don't use poorly formed biblical wisdom in an accusatory way against God's people you know so Job needed to learn things because he thought that the doctrine of retribution meant he shouldn't have been getting this but the friends thought the doctrine of retribution teaches you deserve it we don't know what you've done but you must have done something but you read it and you'll see that Job says well I haven't done it um, but so they're the, they're the big issues I reckon um, Ecclesiastes Grappling with the complexities of life under the sun. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Maybe Solomon, some scholars say we're not really sure. I don't think it matters actually. But preacher, that's what it's translated in the ESV, the teacher in the NIV. The Hebrew word is kahileth, which means someone who assembles a congregation. Um, so someone who gathers people together to, for the purpose of teaching them. Uh, the theme of the book is that life often doesn't appear to make sense. It's frequently anything but black and white. And so Ecclesiastes grapples with the grey areas. So chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Hmm. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah. But see, I, I read this with some year 10 kids once, and some of them were really angry. Life is meaningless. We read it in the NIV. And so I said, yeah, just hang on. And one thing that occurs to me about reading Ecclesiastes, don't, and even Job, don't form a judgment about any part of it until you've read it all. Um, because it's, it's, like if you went home after point one of my sermon this morning, oh, Steve, you know, you didn't hear the rest of it. 
you know, maybe I would have qualified. So the book of Ecclesiastes is like a sermon where he's saying, I've done this searching and I've gone through all this sort of stuff. Here's some provisional conclusions and here's the end. So don't, don't judge him before you get to the end. You've got to let him get there. He's building a case, right? That phrase under the sun means life in the visible world, right? Or everything that we can see, right? That's what under the sun means. Um, now, the provision, first provisional conclusion, verse 2 and 3, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Does that sound familiar? What am I doing this for? Why am I getting up and going to work every day? Why am I doing the dishes and, you know, it just goes around and around? What's the point? They're good questions, right? And maybe this is a way in. I actually think this could be a way in uh, for people in our culture because people have given up on the idea of sin. Um, I think they kind of believe that there's a great sky daddy who will welcome them at the end of all things. But up until then, it's just get on with life. But a lot of people, I think, are starting to notice that life doesn't make much sense and it's just this so maybe maybe this could be a good way in with people to say yeah, there's some big questions you know that's what i think um so vanity that word there the, the hebrew word is hebel um and it's a word which has been translated in a number of different ways it literally means something that's brief and insubstantial something like breath or a cloud or the wind right that's what it literally means so the niv and the new living translation translate it meaningless the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it futility. Lindsay Wilson, my mate, um, he, he persuaded me that a good translation of it would be enigmatic. Something that you can't quite grasp. Does that sound like life? I can kind of get it, but I just can't wrap my hand fully around it. Right? Enigmatic, enigmatic, says the preacher. Enigmatic of enigmaticness. All is enigmatic. Is that? That works for me. Life is enigmatic. It's not cut and dried. It's not as neat as we'd wish it would be. There are things that we just have to say, I don't know, but I'm going to trust you anyway, God. Um, So he tests for life's meanings. He says he tries wisdom, madness and folly. He tries pleasure. He gets on the grog. Um, he does great works he gets invested in work and building stuff and his conclusion there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also i saw is from the hand of god that's the doctrine of creation again it's good to enjoy the things that god's given us but he's tried all this stuff and it hasn't really worked for him now fee and stewart gordon fee and uh, douglas stewart in their introductory book on the bible how to read the bible for all it's worth they say that there's four dominating realities in the book of ecclesiastes the first is that god is the creator the second way the second is that god's ways can never be fully understood it's a bit like what hans said before if we understood god completely we'd be god so we have to put up with something less than complete understanding human life under the sun is often unjust it's complex and unjust now if you haven't got that sorted out then you're going to be torn apart when you see political corruption oh i thought we elected nice people i thought they'd do the right thing um that's not how it works um ever since the dawn of time people have been led by corrupt governments there's corruption wherever you look um it's life is often unjust and then there's death now that's one of the big themes of the book of ecclesiastes whether you're rich or poor, 
whether you're powerful or insignificant, whether you're a human or an animal, you die. Now, this is something we've got to wrap our heads around because death is the great leveller. It doesn't matter how rich you've been, when you're dead, you're as dead as a dog. Right? And if that's all there is, and that's all the atheists tell us there is, then life is meaningless. Right? Uh, did I ever tell you about the funeral? You got time for a story? Yeah. Back in the day when I was doing funerals, when I was helping out, when I was studying, um, I probably have told you this, just not off if it gets boring, all right? But uh, I drove a carload of people, of, of funeral people. To, we, we did Lionel Rose's funeral. He had a state funeral, the boxer. So we did the state funeral for Lionel Rose. And so it was all hands on deck, and I drove a carload of helpers to Lionel Rose's funeral at the festival hall. And so the bloke sitting in the passenger seat says, and so what do you do, Steve? And I said, oh, I'm, a th- I'm a pastor studying theology. He goes, oh, I, says, oh. He says, I said, what do you do? He says, uh, oh, I'm a, a celebrant. He says, I can do weddings, I do weddings and funerals. He says, I can do religious ones. He says, if people want the Lord's Prayer, I can do the Lord's Prayer. Amazing grace, amazing grace. Psalm 23, I said, oh, yeah. So, so anyway, we had a chat about this. So anyway, the next time I saw him was at a funeral and he was the celebrant. And um, so we were down by the grave and, uh, and so he started his committal ceremony and he said, well, at this reverent time, this time of reverence, and he made several references to the need for reverence. And then he went into his speech proper and he says, evolution teaches us we must all make way for the next generation. So then he went on and, and gave us several different lessons that we can learn from evolution. And I'm standing there trying to look polite thinking, so what you're really saying is your mate is compost. Because that's what evolution teaches us, right? You just wouldn't say that, would you, right? So he came up to me at the end of the thing while we were waiting for everybody to leave and he goes, what did you make him a godless service? And so I said, I don't share your confidence that evolution explains the need for reverence. She says, what do you mean? I said, I just don't think you can draw a line between evolution and the need for reverence. So she says, do you believe all that stuff? I said, I'm not saying what I believe. I just don't think you can get reverence out of evolution. He says, oh, I used to be religious and I've got the scars to prove it. And off he went, right? Um, But evolution teaches us that the first part of Ecclesiastes is spot on. If you're dead, you're dead. And it doesn't matter what you... That's what Richard Dawkins says. Life is meaningless, which makes me wonder why he works so hard at his biology. Uh, But anyway, we haven't heard it all. Life is enigmatic, but there are only two ways to live. You can be a wise person or a fool. But at the end of the book, he tells us the result of all of his deliberations. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, in other words, be wise. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he's been through everything. He's tried everything he can get his hands on, everything he can invest his wealth in. But the conclusion of the matter is, be wise, fear God. Because there will be a judgment. And so death is not the end, he says. And that's wisdom. right? And so you live your life under the sun in light of that. How's that sound? But you've got to, you've got to do a bit of grappling with Ecclesiastes. But one of the things that I like about it is that it owns up to these core realities that we're surrounded by. There's a lot that I don't get. Um, and, and, you know, I am troubled by the injustice of the world. And, and, and crooked people do set a, They often seem to get along very well. 
I wish it wasn't that way, but it won't be that way forever. Because God will bring every deed into judgment. And so we need to rest in that. The bits that we can't change now, we need to trust God for for the future. You press on? Song of Songs. I'm just going to skip through this really quickly. Um, it was either by Solomon or for Solomon, who was married quite a lot. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, according to 1 Kings 11. Um, it may be it may be that that is a stylized number because 700 plus 300 equals 1,000 and 1,000 is a really, really, really big round number. So it may not be meant to be understood literally. I won't... Um, but it, it just means he had a lot of women and too many, actually, because... Um, the Bible never actually endorses polygamy Um, now the the thing about the Song of Solomon is it shouldn't be in the Bible there are some people who think no it shouldn't I've got to pull this one out of there Um, but Rabbi Akbar, a Jewish rabbi of the early 2nd century he said the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel all the writings are holy and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies so he he regarded it as a, a pinnacle of holiness in the Jewish scriptures But the problem of receiving a book of love poems into the Bible was one that was faced up to uh, by early Christian thinkers who said, well, it looks like a love poem, but it's probably about Jesus. Right? So that's how they got around. Do you know the old Sunday school joke? Um, Woman teaching, or a teacher teaching Sunday school. Now, boys and girls, what's brown and fluffy? It's got long, fluffy ears and a little funny tail and it lives in a hole in the ground. So all the kids sit there looking at her. And one of them says, I know the answer's Jesus, but boy, it sounds like a rabbit. <laughs> now, the answer is always Jesus, but some, look, this is a book about a man and a woman who love each other. That's what it's about, right? Now, why is it in the Bible? Um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart say this, the poem should be read in light of Genesis 1 and 2. Following the command to be fruitful and increase in number, God plants a garden in which he placed the man and the woman. The narrative concludes a man will be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So the Song of Songs recaptures that scene where the woman and the man take utter delight and pleasure in each other's bodies and do so without shame. It's like heaven on earth. That's what the Song of Solomon is. It's a little glimpse of how good life can be. Uh, So there's a few voices. There's she and the beloved, they're the woman. Um, There's he or the lover, that's the man. There's the others, the friends, the women's companions. Um, The key text in the whole thing is verse 6 and 7 of chapter 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So that's the book's basic message. Love is a paradise regained, says Bill Dumbrell. Um, It's a partial reversal of the fall. It's like a fountain of life. Um, Does God give good gifts? Song of Solomon is a good gift about the good gift of marriage. That's what it's about. Now in that, um, we know that the New Testament says that, uh, well the Old Testament actually alludes to God's people being married to him. And so it is a picture of the love that Jesus has for the church. But it functions as a love poem 
Um, and so Bill Dumbrell again says the marriage relationship is being depicted as a microcosm of what the covenant was intended to produce within the people of God. The Song of Songs is as an ideal of perfect love clearly points in the direction of the love of Christ for his church. Right. So the, the most the, the most wonderful picture of the love that Jesus has for the church in the New Testament is is Ephesians five. Um, you know, when, when Paul gives the instruction to husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a picture of self-sacrifice. Uh, and, and so that's, what, that's the chief role of marriage, is to be a picture on earth of the love that God's shown us in his son uh, uh, by, by Jesus dying for us. So that's the Song of Songs. Have you got time for the Psalms? Are you still are you going all right? I could do this all day. <laughs> Uh, Psalms are a treasure trove a lot of people love them very much John Calvin said they're an anatomy of all parts of the soul for which there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that he's not here represented as in a mirror so Psalms is one of those go-to books where people read them and very often find their own experience reflected back at them I know that in times of uh, difficulty I have found great solace great comfort in the Psalms and and so I, I often tell people um, if they're going through difficult days, I just say, make the, make the Psalms your friends. Get to know them. Read them over and over again. And there's some that you'll want to come back to repeatedly. Um, and so, yeah, as I say, it's a good thing to read the whole Bible in a year, but sometimes maybe you'd want to just get a Psalm and say, I'm going to read that and I'm going to read that and I'm going to read that until I start to believe it. So I memorised Psalm 46 a couple of years ago because I really needed to. Somebody at Packenham Baptist sort of gave it to me. They, she said, Psalm 46, Steve. And I thought, I'm going to memorise that. So I did. Um, and and I just used to muse on it in the car. I keep it in my phone, you know, so I can review it at the lights. Uh, wrote it on little cards, shoved it in there, and you know. Um, so sometimes the Psalms are just real good medicine. There's five books of Psalms. Like there's five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's five books of Psalms. And so book one goes from 1 to 41, book 2 to 72, and so on. There's five books of Psalms, and in the English Bibles you'll see book 1, book 2, book 3. Um, book Psalm 1 and 2, people who know about these things tell me they, they probably exist outside of book 1. They're like the entryway, they're like the doorway into the rest of the book. And so this is how we need to understand the whole book of Psalms, reading them through the lens of Psalm 1 and 2. Right. Once we get our head around Psalm 1 and 2, that's like the preface to the rest of the collection so psalm 1 starts this way blessed is the one who psalm 2 ends this way blessed are all who so psalm 1 is an individual uh, psalm the, the, the blessed way of life for individuals psalm 2 is the blessed way of life for the world right and so the idea of blessing brackets psalm 1 and 2 together right blessed way of life for individuals blessed life way of life for the world so what it tells us is like in so many other parts of the bible there's only two ways to live proverbs says there's the way of the fool the way of the wise Uh, the book of psalms says there's the way of blessing and the way of death take your pick right do you want to be blessed then read psalms um psalm is the greek word which means a song or a hymn it was probably compiled at a time when the second temple was built so probably the collection of psalms came together Many of them would have been written before the exile, but they would have been brought together as a songbook after the exile was over and when they were rebuilding the temple. Um, now, one of the features of Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Um, 
you know, like our, our poems rhyme, you know, um, there was movement at the station for the word that passed around that the cult from old regret got away. Um, but Hebrew poetry doesn't, doesn't rhyme, and as C.S. Lewis says, it's one of the geniuses of God that the Hebrew, that poetry that was to be translated into every language doesn't depend on rhyme, because what they, the Hebrew poets very often said one thing and then said it again. It's what's called parallelism. So Psalm 19 verse 1 is a great example. The heavens declare the glory of God. Second line, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So heavens is paralleled by sky. Uh, the glory of God is paralleled by his handiwork. Right? And it, it, the heavens declare, the sky proclaims. So it's saying the same thing using slightly different words to amplify where each one makes more than of, of the other pair. Uh, 116 of the 150 have titles or superscriptions. Sometimes they tell us who wrote them. Other times they describe the historical setting. 73 of the Psalms are associated with David. Either they're written by him or for him. So we're not sure, but he was the king and it wouldn't have been unknown that, you know, some clever poet says, Dave, I've got a song for you, right? I'm dedicated to you, right? But um, he is known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's called that in 2 Samuel. So... He was known to be a great musician and no doubt he wrote a lot of these psalms as well. Um, but one of the superscriptions, a very famous one, is Psalm 51, which means that you can read the psalm and you can see the historical setting that brought the psalm about. In this case, Psalm 51 was written after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and after Nathan the prophet had come to him and said, you are the man, you're a murderer and a thief and an adulterer. Right? And so David repented and he wrote Psalm 51 as an extraordinary psalm of repentance. Um, Now there's some problems in the book of Psalms which any honest reader will confess. A lot of them are laments and Christians didn't know they were allowed to lament. But lament means pouring your heart out with God and telling him exactly how you're feeling. And the Psalms do that. In fact, scholars who know about these things have categorised the Psalms into different categories so there's praise psalms, there's royal psalms, but the number one category is lament, where people are expressing sorrow to God. So if you're ever feeling sorrowful, is it all right to tell God? It is, right? Um, so a lament is a cry to God that he resolve a difficult situation so that the singer can return to praise. Now the first three books are dominated by lament. There's some praise psalms, but the number one category in books one, two, and three is lament. But the um, so Psalm thirteen, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Imagine that. The psalmist being really honest with God. God, I feel like you've forgotten me. But as the psalm goes on, the psalmist recalls to mind the promises of God, and emerges from the experience wanting to praise God. Now every lament psalm, bar one and that's Psalm 88, it starts with pouring out the heart and then it ends with an intention to praise God. When you bring me through, I will praise you in the company of the righteous or something like that. But Psalm 88 is an unrelieved lament and it's typically understood to be about the exile in Babylon. Um, It's very interesting. Um, As the book of Psalms wears on, every lament psalm bar that one starts with lament and ends with an intent to praise. As the book, of the five books of Psalms unfold, you get more lament at the beginning 
and then more praise at the end. So there's this trajectory that tends toward praise, right? And, and so it's like when we understand God, when we when we understand his salvation, when we understand life, yes, we can pour our heart out to him, but we're going to be characterised more by praise than than lament. Right. Um, but one of the really difficult categories of psalms is the imprecatory psalms or imprecatory psalms. I'm not sure how to say it properly. But they're the psalms where the psalmist is asking for God to bring judgment on his enemies. Now, we're never told in the book of Psalms who the enemies are. Right? David often talks, you know, even Psalm 23, uh, you have laid a table for me, you have laid out a table for me in the presence of who? My enemies. It's like I'm having fish and chips while the people who hate me are watching, you know. Uh, we're never told who the enemies are, so we can kind of read our own, might be the boss, might be the next door neighbour, it, it could be someone just giving us real grief. But we can read our situation into it. But Psalm 137 is one that was written while the psalmist was in Babylon and they're being taunted by the Babylonians. Sing us one of your Hebrew blues songs. He says, how can we sing a song in, Zion, in Babylon when we were thinking, how can we sing our songs in a strange land? Right. But then at the end of the psalm, it finishes this way, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays with you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? Now you'll notice this. The psalmist doesn't say, God, put them into my hands so I can do with them as I want to. What he is saying is, dear God, do to them, you do, what they've done to us because they took our babies and bashed them up so god please deal justly with the outcome now remember poetry sometimes uses exaggeration it may be that that's there but maybe if you've had your children's heads bashed out against a rock maybe you'd be talking like this to god too maybe you would people see terrible things but the psalmist is not asking for strength to be the, the, the person who gets revenge. He's saying, God, deal justly with them. Do to them what they've done to us. Do you see that? So true wisdom, to finish up. True wisdom, of course, is bound up in Jesus. And that's the kind of language that's used in the New Testament. Uh, so Colossians 2 verses 2 to 3 uh, Paul outlines he says my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ in whom are all, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge so if you want to be a wise person the best way now is to know Jesus put your trust in Jesus uh, live without turning back from following Jesus uh, trust Jesus to fill you with his spirit uh, this, who is sometimes called the spirit of wisdom uh, to make good decisions to apply scripture well to the circumstances of your life uh, but wisdom is bound up in knowing Jesus and so whereas in the Old Testament the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom we could say faith in Jesus is the beginning of wisdom there we go so they're challenging books, but that's good fun, isn't it? It's good to be challenged. Stops you getting old and stale. There we go. Any questions or comments or 
doubts, hesitations, or if, or you just had enough more to go home. Yeah, hands. Thank you.